0: Nobody likes being ignored and left out or just left behind. And so many people with childhood PTSD have it because of these experiences when they were small. Now, maybe your parents were alcoholic or addicted and turned off like a light switch when it was time to give you attention and support. Or maybe one of your parents died or was locked up or just left you like you never existed. And not only was this terrible to happen to you as a kid, to any child, but it can really muck up your adult relationships with anxieties and longings that can really drive away any possibility of genuine, stable connections with people, romantic or otherwise. Hey, it's Anna here. Just taking a little pause to talk about getting help when you're having a rough time. There are a lot of things you can try. And one of them is online therapy through BetterHelp. BetterHelp's mission is to make therapy more affordable and more accessible. And those are very good things. Because finding a therapist can be really hard. BetterHelp makes it easy to sign up and get matched with a therapist who meets your criteria. And when you click the special link that I'm going to give you, it not only helps this podcast, but it gets you 10% off your first month of therapy. So you can connect with a therapist, see what happens, and if anything feels like it's not a fit, which is common in therapy, you can easily switch to a new therapist at no additional cost. No stress about insurance or who's in your network or anything like that. So if you're struggling and you need to talk to a human, try BetterHelp. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash C-C-F. C-C-F stands for crappy childhood fairy. That's BetterHelp dot com slash C-C-F. There's also a link in the episode description. If you need it, that might be easier. Thanks for sponsoring us BetterHelp. help. Now, back to the show. Abandonment wounds push you into relationships too quickly. The slow pathway, you know, that just wasn't even encoded in your nervous system, but I promise you, you can learn to do it with some techniques. And I do teach that. But when you were a kid, you didn't learn the slow way. And then when you find yourself attached to someone you can't stand or who treats you badly you may feel like you can't leave because your abandonment triggers kick in and make it feel like leaving would be almost worse than dying so you go in too fast and then you can't leave that's how people get stuck and abandonment wounds can also show up in group dynamics where i'm willing to lay money on it you've had horrible experiences of being ostracized left out, judged by peer groups. and i'll talk about that in this video too. i'm going to talk about why these wounds are so hard to observe in yourself when you kind of flip out on someone because your abandonment wounds get set off. it's like you're not even yourself and the desperate and sometimes overly intense reaction to feeling abandoned even when it's just a feeling and no one has actually done it to you in that moment. it's almost like a bad dream. What it actually is, is an emotional flashback, which is normal with CPTSD. An emotional state from the past comes back and overlays your present time experience. Someone walks out of the room when you're trying to talk to them and this tsunami of desperation and grief can come over you. That's an abandonment wound. And next thing you know, you're calling them names, you're threatening to leave, you're crying, it feels like your life is over. That's what we call abandonment melange. That's a word Pete Walker contributed to the literature, and it's such a good concept of the intense grief and rage and panic that can come over people when the feeling of abandonment happens, and it's drawing through this emotional flashback on what happened to them as a kid. And I wanna talk about why that happens and how emotional injuries that happened before you even had language show up like that as just overpowering emotions that aren't connected to present day circumstances. And you don't even know where they came from, but they are upon you and they feel real. So let's just go over some common triggers that you see in people who were abandoned as kids. The really valuable thing about looking at triggers is that everything that Is a symptom of CPTSD only occurs if it gets triggered and that includes you know the neurological dysregulation disconnecting from people going into self-defeating behaviors of lashing out running away smoking you know there's so many self-defeating behaviors but all of that sort of calms down it goes dormant like a you know like chickenpox virus if you're not getting triggered so you can't stop the world from triggering you but you can learn to calm how you respond to triggers once you know what they are and you have the tools. So let's talk about some of the triggers that that can really get you when you have abandonment wounds. One of them is when somebody walks out of the room, if they storm out when you're in the middle of talking. This is a really normal thing. There are some people, including some people with CPTSD, but all kinds of people, when a conversation gets intense, how they sort of self-regulate is they get physical distance for a minute. So they might stroll out of the room for a, a minute. Now this is really different than saying, that's it, it's over, and they leave and pack a suitcase and they're out the door. But even that can be the same impulse, the same coping mechanism to flee. So somebody who is like actually in the relationship and will come back in the room in just a few minutes, sometimes walks out of the room and just goes, oh gosh, I just can't deal with this conversation. For a person with CPTSD, that can be so triggering. It, it brings back, you know, who, some memory that you don't even have anymore. You, it, when you didn't have words like before the age of three or so, you can't really form memories. And so all you remember is the emotion. You can't remember the event. But it's not uncommon in people who grew up in unstable households where there was fighting or addiction or, you know, trauma going on, that that would have happened, that your needs would have been neglected, that you would have cried for a very long time in a wet diaper. And that's where these wounds come from. So it's not going to come back as this reminds me of when I was crying all alone. Like you won't have that memory, but you'll remember the feeling. And the feeling comes up and since it's not attached to a, a... you know a cognition of what what it was of what the memory is it just feels like it's happening right now and you just think this terrible person who's making me feel this way i have got to shut down this relationship then if you have typical cptsd that wants to do that you know that has that reaction to things maybe an hour later when you start calming down or when you start going into dissociation and the emotions are calmer then you your emotions come back and you go oh dear what have i done oh dear what have i done If you have the kind of CPTSD I have, you've probably done that before. You may have ruined relationships with it before. All right, similar to that trigger is the silent treatment. Now the silent treatment, There's minor forms of it where somebody's just like, I'm not going to talk about it with you. And then there's one where, you know, somebody living with you or all the kids at school, they turn their back and they won't talk to you. They shun you. They refuse, you know, there's stonewalling where I won't talk about it. And then there is the silent treatment. And either way, this can be extremely triggering for somebody who was rejected or neglected as a kid. We can't control what other people do, but I would say the silent treatment is emotionally immature. It's not a good way to handle conflict with somebody. And at the extreme, it can be emotional abuse. So I don't recommend doing it or staying with people who keep doing it and don't intend to change it. All right, a third trigger that really gets people who were abandoned as kids is waiting, having to wait for somebody. Now, maybe you were a kid who got left in daycare until the last minute or even later, or your parents were separated and you sat by the window all of Saturday afternoon waiting for your dad to come and pick you up for his time with you and he didn't show. Waiting and not having your needs met is a big thing that can cause CPTSD in the first place. So a lot of people who have this wound any kind of waiting does it and the thing is when it happens because because it's triggering cptsd it simultaneously triggers kind of a fog where you go i think i'm freaking out about getting stood up for this person who said they would come and oh then your mind plays a trick and goes well it's probably my fault it's probably just me and maybe should i be mad about this and i get a lot of letters from people where they're like is it just me and so sometimes I or our community come in you know in the membership community that we have people can pose those questions in our secret Facebook group like is it just me or when this guy said he would call me this weekend for the plan and then he didn't call and I waited all day is that bad and everybody can go yeah that was bad maybe some people don't mind being treated like that but you do and it's not a happy thing and it's not a good sign for a relationship and if it's something that you don't have a boundary around I have good news for you you can make a boundary around it and then future people <laughs> won't get very far with you if they treat you like that. All right, number four, feeling jealous and getting gaslit about it. Now, I think this happens a lot um, when you're dating that you break up with somebody and then they say, We're just gonna be friends, right? Let's just stay friends. And you think, oh yeah, I should be, I should do that. That's what people do. And then you have to watch them eventually get together with somebody new and pretend like you're the cool girl, but you're actually jealous. And you have to pretend you're not jealous. Anything where something feels terrible to you, but you have to pretend it's not terrible is putting you in danger of like dissociating. And this is, this is something that's been very hard about the age of division that happens over social media is that people can do terrible things and say terrible things. And you can't defend yourself because if you do, and you say anything you could get attacked by trolls you could get canceled we have thousands of people who are going into their cptsd because they can't speak up and when people just make up stuff about them and it's terrifying it's horrible and it is a form of narcissistic abuse when people do that to each other So if you grew up with parents who were neglectful and for all the reasons they get neglectful because, you know, they have personality disorders, they're drunk, they're high, they're totally selfish, if that's what was happening, you got told all the time, you know, you got treated badly and then you're like, oh, get over it, or oh, stop being such a worrywart, or oh, you're just, you know, you're being so old-fashioned. I got that all the time as a kid and I was very sensitive about it until I learned to calm those triggers a little better. But i can't stand it when i know very well that something bothers me and i'm shamed for being bothered now like everybody else i've had to be in situations and jobs where something really bothered me and there was nothing that could be done about it you know having um, a boss who didn't think that i was valuable enough to promote so some of these things it's life it's where it is and when that happens you know if you're an autonomous person it's time to change jobs for example or you're dating somebody and But I wanted to get to this thing where you get gaslit in present time, right? You're dating somebody and they want to hang out with their ex and you're supposed to be cool about it. You're getting gaslit. Like, what's the matter? Why are you so jealous? You just have jealousy. Jealousy is how people feel when they have an expectation of, loyalty or monogamy and they feel threatened and yes i totally have met people where the jealousy is just kind of rampant it's not really tied to reality that can happen but it's also something that is natural and if you've been told like you don't get to hold out for that you actually don't have to agree to be somebody's an ex's buddy and you don't have to agree to be okay dating somebody who hangs out with their ex. You get to actually have your boundaries about that and you get to maybe test out okay I think I'm okay with it and then you're like I'm not okay with it actually and you get to not be okay with it. Don't kid yourself. Don't try to pretend you're somebody you're not because that can just bring on the old trigger of being abandoned. It is a huge abandonment trigger to be afraid that somebody's going to leave you. And there's part of that that's just baked into relationships, especially in the early stages, especially when you're young. Like that's, that's part of it. But how you can keep yourself healing and intact as a person with CPTSD is to be very clear with yourself about what your boundaries are about that. And to, to go very slowly in relationships so that you can, you can refrain from attaching too strong before you know if this is somebody who matches you in terms of what you need and expect out of the relationship. Another trigger uh, for people who are abandoned is empty time when there's nothing scheduled. You may find yourself, maybe you overfunction. you fill up all your time. You do frivolous socializing just because the thought of being on your own for an evening is just makes you kind of anxious. Maybe a lot of feelings come up. So here's what's really great about the path of healing from trauma is it involves tools that help you make the most of the feelings that come up so if you it's actually very fruitful sometimes to be alone for an evening even when you feel lonely you sit down and you write your fears and resentments in the way that i teach and a lot more is going to come up when you're feeling a little bit alone. Less will come up when everybody's waiting for you because everybody's going to go to the restaurant, right? You're going to be like, blah, 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 <laughs> and go on. But when you're lonely, that can be a fruitful kind of loneliness, is to go ahead and face what's in there. And some of my most powerful experiences of healing have been on those really dark nights of the soul when I was feeling so alone. So empty time can be used very fruitfully for something. And that's healing all right number six closeness with loved ones can be a trigger it, it's kind of ironic right it's like not having closeness is a trigger but sometimes when people really show up and look you in the eye and they love you and for this I always think about when I was 15 my dad died of ALS and A few months before he died you know i had to travel from one state to another to visit him and so the last time i saw him was four months before he died and i will never forget he was so sad when he said goodbye he was standing in his driveway smiling and waving and saying goodbye and i wanted to run to him and just hug him but the whole thing was so weird and uncomfortable i just couldn't so the intensity of his feelings of his wanting to give me all that love for the rest of my life was It was like a fire hose. It was like trying to drink out of a fire hose and I couldn't deal with it. And it was a trigger for me. So I was, you know, to have my dad die when I was still a youngster like that, it is a classic form of abandonment. He didn't do it on purpose. He never would have done it if he could have helped it. But first my parents got divorced and then my mom moved us out of state and, oh, I lost my dad in these stages. And it really, really affected me. And I have no doubt it affected how I approached relationships later. So I've still had time now to reflect on that love that I saw in his face and that I remember through his actions. And he wrote me a series of letters to let me know how much he loved me. He knew he was dying. We all knew. And um, I still have them. And from time to time, I take them out. And they're, it's, I can't, you know, it has to be very time to time. It's so intense to have somebody give you a lifetime of love like that in a letter. And I'm very grateful I have it. I realize some people never even got that. But I thought I didn't get anything. And then later I recovered in the letters and I realized he sort of encapsulated his love so that I, when I was older, I could get it. And it even says that in one of the letters. I'm writing this down because I think when you're older, it will make more sense to you and and you'll be able to appreciate it. And he told me me, um, what his work was, what he actually did at work and told me some stories from his childhood. So it was really great because there just wasn't time. I never got to know him as an adult and I'm way older now than he was when he died, which is funny to think. And I still miss him. Yeah, still miss him. So, all right, number seven is watching other people enjoy social ease. Like, why didn't I get the memo? (laughs) You got triggers installed instead, right? So it can be a trigger for your abandonment when you see other people just not being so effed up in social situations and comparing yourself or imagining that they're okay one thing i've learned over time is people don't always feel as at ease as you think but some do it's true some are just like la la everything's great i'm confident i feel like i fit in everywhere i go well i don't that's not how i feel And so sometimes watching them, I start to compare myself and then I go into the abandonment thing. I'm going to get left out. I just know it's coming. I know. I'll take myself out preemptively. Did you ever do that? I did. (laughs) All right. Another trigger can be seeing other people happy and you feel like you, you should be happy. There's no reason you aren't, but you're not happy. You feel shame or ostracized, or you just know in your bones, you're never going to fit in sometimes though you are ostracized because of something about you maybe you're prickly maybe you don't contribute enough maybe you have a vibe that's very stressed out or angry right and you might be in a state of confusion about why this is you you think oh these other people are terrible sometimes people actually are terrible and you just haven't had enough healing to choose people that are great that you feel good with sometimes you go into blame, like you just don't feel okay in yourself, and your reflex is to blame other people. And people have nervous systems, so no matter how polite or kind your words are, if you're feeling kind of like mm, with other people, they feel it, and you will find people pulling away. And that has been a lot of my experience in life, where if I were to ask people, How come I'm not included? Not that I did, <laughs> but if I did they would have just said, I don't know, you're included. I don't, I don't know what you're saying, but I just didn't have a very inviting demeanor. I wasn't positive about getting together. I, I, I almost was looking for a way to get left out because I felt so triggered by the whole question of whether I was going to be included, you know? And so when you're healed, you have a little bit more like latitude to, you get those fears and resentments on paper about that could happen or has happened. And then you just kind of like give it your best shot. And you just go, hey, do you want to hang out? Or, hey, can I tag along? And then you only have to like feel terrible and embarrassed if you, you know, <laughs> you still don't have to feel terrible and embarrassed, but they could actually reject you. But that's almost never what's going on. So we work on ourselves. And then we work on being free enough to express ourselves and ask for what we want. There's always a component of working on ourselves so that we can be you know nice good people that people want to hang out with and that's not a given for everybody with trauma so i'm kind of talking about how a history of abandonment leads to a present day feeling ostracized and and it is so hard to be ostracized it does happen for real sometimes sometimes there is um an overlay you know sometimes people really are just being wicked sometimes your trauma wounds are kind of adding to it and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. But for ostracization, a trigger is being in groups at all. Like just believing I don't belong. I never do. I'm uncomfortable. I'm triggered. I didn't get the memo. I don't like these people. They're also stuck up. They're also perfect. They're also normal. You know, whatever your judgment is, it's, it, it's, it's not a friendly vibe, right? Second one is feeling overlooked, right? <laughs> Did you ever do this? When you were in school, when you raised your hand with an answer, and somebody else got called on, and then you go, Oh, no, I wasn't raising my hand. It's this weird shame that some of us feel about, like, offering ourselves and then getting overlooked. It's like shameful or something. If you stand outside of it and you just think of a little kid raising her hand in class, it's okay. Not everybody can get called on. And so you may have learned, don't raise your hand. Just sit there and act like you don't know the answer either, which is a way to take yourself out of the mix preemptively so you never have to feel ashamed about not getting called on. And this can be applied to jobs and relationships and friend groups and family stuff. And so it really takes a lot of courage to just put yourself out there for what you want afterwards. All right, another trigger, feeling judged, not accepting yourself. You know, if you're, if you're feeling judged by other people, I can almost guarantee you, you have a component of not feeling okay for yourself about what you're doing, who you are. And your first order of business is always going to be to work on that, to work on yourself. All right, here's another one. You know, you don't belong, but what happened was you were just crap fitting with this group anyway, just so that you could have people to hang out with. And isn't it funny how you can do that sometimes and just be like, I don't like these people. I don't fit in. So there you have it. You know, when you hang out with people just to use them to fill up your time, that can happen. Number six, feeling condescended to. That comes from fearing you're not enough, that you don't know enough. And yes, some people are very condescending. Ugh. And it's a trigger. It's a trigger I really don't like. I don't like, you know, when people assume that I don't know something and they explain it to me. And it happens all the time. And I used to get very prickly and want to tell them, look, I know that, I know. and. My healing at this stage is, I don't even bother. I'm just like, all right, thank you. Because I basically, I don't think it's very polite behavior, but I don't feel like taking it on or getting into conflict with people. I just as soon, you know, carry on and keep all my self-regulation available for myself to use. So what can you do about these triggers? The world doesn't stop showing them to you. The one thing that can change is your trauma-driven response where you shut down You pull away you lash out or you avoid people and you avoid your potential as your only means to control the damage that happens when those responses get unleashed but that's not great right you taking yourself out is you taking yourself out you can heal your responses when you feel triggered and uh, even the abandonment ones, and it starts by learning to notice and calm those triggers. When you know what's happening, it stops feeling like it's just consuming you, drowning you, that it stops feeling so real, frankly. A little space appears where you see that you have a choice. If you grew up with parents who were unreliable, you may have ended up with strong triggers now in adulthood when people leave you waiting when you've made plans but they either don't show up or they don't get in touch until the last minute and they leave you anxious and afraid with your emotions escalating every minute that passes. Do you have that? It's an emotional flashback, right? It's an old memory that sometimes doesn't even have an experience attached to it. It just floods in under certain triggers like being kept waiting. And you may not even know cognitively what hit you but someone leaves you waiting and you fill up with adrenaline and then more adrenaline because there's this fear that you'll act in an irrational relationship-destroying way. Maybe you've done that before, like exploding with anger when the person finally shows up or you'll rationalize your fears as just you being, you know, you're just being crazy or insecure. And this confusion whether someone is really awful and deserves your wrath or whether you're crazy and should just stop, right? That confusion is very anxiety provoking and it's a trigger in itself. This is so very much what it's like to begin dating people when you have unhealed childhood trauma. It's a normal side effect but of course we want to get some clarity and heal it. So I have a letter today from a woman I'll call May and she writes, Dear Anna, I've noticed that a major trigger for me is when it comes to planning or waiting on someone to inform me of plans or communication around plans. With some people it flows really easily and I don't even think about it, usually with friends. But with other people who are less communicative or friends who I'm not as close to or they don't think that we're as close as I think we are, and then she clarifies that she's really talking about men she's dating. It can become really debilitating if they don't do things a certain way that indicates they care about me. She says with quotation marks, circling this because I think she's calling herself a little crazy but we'll get to that. Okay I have this idea that if someone found me to be an important and worthy person in their life they would show that by being considerate and relatively reliable with communication and plans. I'm not saying this is correct but it's just what I have noticed in my brain. Regardless of the trigger, in some cases it feels like a relatively reasonable request as well meaning if someone says they will touch base tomorrow about evening plans and then doesn't text me till 6 p.m. that day, that feels borderline rude to me like they are keeping me waiting around on them and, and it must be a sign that they don't really respect or like me, for example. Maybe I'm off on that too, but that's just how it feels at the moment. I think this trigger stems a lot from my father who according to my mom was often unreliable about plans. For example making plans to come see me and my sister after my parents were divorced and I was around four or five and lived with my mom then he would break the plans. He was also demanding of time and emotional connection with me so I felt like I often had to do whatever he wanted when he wanted it but was left in the lurch when I was hoping to rely on him for anything. I've seen this pain come up many times in relationships when it comes to how men create or follow up on plans with me. So I realize so much of this is a trigger yet I also have plenty of people who simply seem like they generally... They generally want me in their lives. They communicate directly or more often than not reliable people. So I know it's very possible for me not to be triggered by this topic. So when someone triggers it I'm not sure if that means they just don't value me in my time and I'm reading my instinct correctly or if I'm expecting too much from them too soon because of past trauma especially with men, as I'm scared it could be the sign of an unreliable man who I'm afraid will be like my father, breaking plans and being emotionally unreliable which I do not want. This can happen really early on before I even have enough of a pattern to really know for sure. With men I feel terrified of checking in on them and asking for an update as I would with a friend, for example, because I don't want to come across as triggered and scared. And then I find if I don't check in I can get resentful when they do finally update me. It can go in a circle. Because of this I'm curious. How and when do I communicate my needs to someone when I'm also aware there is a major trigger at play? I've never really known how to communicate my needs if I even know what they are because I fear I will sound demanding and manipulative. When I think I know one and it seems reasonable enough for example, please don't leave me hanging all day about our plans, how do I do it in a way that doesn't accidentally become an unreasonable demand on someone because of my deeper trigger around it? Signed from May. All right, May. I'm so glad you wrote. I've got your back here, and I totally know what you're talking about. I think this is uh, something a lot of us can relate to. Waiting has been a huge trigger for me, so let's go through again. All right, major trigger around planning, waiting on someone to tell you of plans, and communication surrounding plans. With some people, it flows really easily, and I don't think about it usually with friends. With others, less communicative friends, and friends who may not think of me as as being as close to them as I see us or especially men I'm dating. Okay hold on just as you're doing that I'm hearing this bifurcation of people in your life. There's friends, there's people who are easy for you and you mentioned you can just like text them and go hey when are we getting together and then there's men and there's this common characteristic with men. You're saying it's friends but I don't know, it sounds like a bifurcation of types of relationship and when a romantic relationship comes along the trigger exists. Now the question for you is does it exist because you're just so triggerable or does it exist because of the men you're allowing into your life? Okay, I hear you second guessing yourself a little bit about that. So let's see if we can zero in on what that is. I think a lot of people have that problem. Now you said people who are not less communicative and who may not see me as as a close friend as much as I do. And that it can become really debilitating for you if they don't do things a certain way that, quote, indicates they care about me. Now, when you put quotes on that, I think what you're doing is trying to admit that part of you sees that that's unreasonable. And I just want to tell you, actually, that's not unreasonable. I I think what's unreasonable is that you think there's any problem with you wanting indications that the people you spend your time with care about you. Of course they should care about you and and respect you and respect your time. So yeah, so it becomes really debilitating if they don't do things a certain way. So I'm trying to guess, you know, I'm sort of trying to read your read through the lines here And I have known people who are overly insecure. It's like an insecure attachment trait. It's like, hey, are we, you know, are we getting together? Okay, are we still getting together? Because I didn't hear from you for an hour. Like it's possible to go too far in that direction. But if people leave you waiting until 6 p.m. and don't tell you what the intention is and they're sort of holding the key to the plan, I think, I don't know, you know, I wasn't there. Maybe it's not that big a deal. Um, it's certainly not what a date does. A, somebody who has asked you out on a date and who, who intends to be on a date with you does not want to leave you waiting like that or worried about it. They're worried that you're going to change your plans if they don't go in and, you know, make a date with you. So here's what I'm intuiting is that these the men you're dating are not fully dating you. And I would I, I would just, you know, I'm sort of jumping cart ahead the horse here, but <laughs> If you are dating somebody who does, who leaves you anxious all day because you don't know what's going on, um, that sounds like it's not a date. And if you you had mentioned, okay, so you said, yeah, I have this idea that if someone found me to be an important and worthy person in their life, they would show that by being considerate and relatively reliable with communication and plans. Hello, May, yes. That's, that's not just some idea you have, not some trauma belief. That's life. If someone likes you and respects you and values you, they will have a reasonable amount of communication and reliability. And then you say, here comes the second guessing. I'm not saying this is correct. Why do I get the feeling that someone has just gaslit the crap out of you? about this you know uh, where you had to defend yourself and where they go oh you're just you know this is just something that you say this is some trigger you have you're so unrealistic and you go well I'm not saying I'm correct like somebody was it your dad just planted in your mind that this is crazy for you to expect that this is what did you say demanding oh dear somebody has made you feel bad about yourself for expecting a normal respectful interaction with people. Make plans, talk about it, feel safe and comfortable if you don't know what the plan is, to just text and say, hey, what time were you thinking we should get together? That's a totally okay thing to do. It's not a bad thing to do. And anybody who thinks that you're there's something wrong with you for checking in about what time they wanna to get together that night when you have a plan, anybody who would go running from you for doing that, isn't a good boyfriend, (laughs) they're not a good boyfriend. Somebody, a good mate or friend is somebody who's just like, oh yeah, hmm, I wasn't sure. Five, six, I don't know, what do you think? Or uh, six o'clock, if we do that, we can get to the movie on time. So that's just normal communication. So May, I can just hear it, like somebody has planted this idea that you're damaged and you've you've had to try to like say it, maybe it's just because I'm traumatized. So I wanna read some of the things you said here. I'm not saying this is correct it's just what I've noticed in my brain you've noticed it cuz it's just common culture and common courtesy regardless of the trigger in some cases it feels like a relatively reasonable request yes there it is you've zeroed in it's not really a you may have a trigger and the trigger may make you very emotional when it happens and maybe paralyze your response to it but it is a reasonable request and you say, if someone says they'll touch base tomorrow about evening plans and don't text me until 6 p.m. that day, that feels borderline rude to me. No, it's not borderline rude. It's rude. <laughs> it's rude. But, you know, I think if people are, if you really are casual friends with somebody and you have a relationship that's solid enough that you're like, tomorrow, right? We're going to get together. Okay, let's, uh, let's check in, you know, I'll talk to you tomorrow. And then they don't talk to you till six, but you can trust them to have the plan. You're talking about people who have conditioned you to totally worry there is no plan. And I just want to challenge you like, what you doing with people who put you in anxiety all day about whether there really is a plan? Here's what I think. I think you may have a trauma trigger about this and I get it, I have it too. It's a lot better than it used to be but I think even more than that, you have a, a crap fit wound. That's crap fit where we, we get too good at learning to fit ourselves to unacceptable behavior and, and, and inappropriate people that you were given a crap fit wound that there's something wrong with you if you need to know what the plan is. Like who does that except some like I don't know I can sort of get a feel for what your dad is like, hey babe you know I gotta do my thing you can't put you know constraints on me and you know gee women or whatever you know some, somebody else's trip got on you and I'm hoping that you can root that out and you get to actually be you. You get to be someone who likes to know what the plan is. Like I know tons of people, they're sort of on a continuum. Some people, they're pretty loose about it. Some people want to know, I'm okay with all of it. And when I care about those people, I try to accommodate what helps them feel comfortable. And if somebody wanted to check in with me about the plan, I would never ever think that that was weird. Now, if they checked in like five times or kept implying that I couldn't be trusted to do what I said I was gonna do, yeah, I might take offense, but it doesn't sound like you're doing that, May. So you say, it feels borderline rude, like they're keeping me waiting around on them and it must be a sign that they don't really respect or like me, for example. Maybe I'm off on that too, but that's just how it feels at the moment. All right, this is where like so many of us get into gaslighting ourselves. I don't think you're off. When people leave you waiting and leave you anxious, uh, and all day and don't talk to you, well, I don't know, mate. It's like if you didn't call, if you didn't text them during the day to let them know you wanted to know, maybe they haven't done anything wrong. Also, people who wait all day are at one end of the continuum. So if you keep finding yourself with people like that and it sounds like you're really talking about men you date, I would just say, yeah, it sounds like you're, the pattern that your dad put in you is active right now. As you heal from your, your childhood PTSD, you will have less and less of a draw towards people who match that sort of neglect of you, that mistreatment of you. You will lose that ability, that special crap fit superpower to just go, oh, they didn't show up and didn't call, that's okay, I'll blame myself. I'll pretend I'm crazy and that the problem is that I'm just so needy and that they're not really the problem and that's how I'll make this whole thing work. And I mean, how many times have all of us done that? So many times. But that's how we end up in relationships that leave us in pain and feeling empty all the time. Okay so you say I think this trigger stems from my father and your mom said he was unreliable he would just leave you waiting. He was very demanding of time and emotional attention. So that's a yucky combination. I hope that men aren't doing that to you where they simultaneously blow you up, blow off plans with you and then when they are with you just demand a lot and drain your energy. You've seen this pain come up many times in relationships. Yeah, if it's coming up many times, yeah, it's probably just your core stuff. And you know what? It totally makes sense why you have that. It's not your fault. It's not your fault you have that. So you say, you realize it's a trigger. Plenty of people simply seem like they generally want me in their lives. That's the kind of guy you wanna date. He generally wants you in your in his life. They communicate directly, very good quality in people. And more often than not they're reliable yes good quality for friends and partners so I know it's very possible for me not to be triggered. You know I'm sort of wondering if you get if your trigger is at all the problem and not just who you're hanging out with. I'm not sure what it means if they don't value my time or if I'm reading if I if my instinct if I'm reading incorrectly or if I'm expecting too much from them too soon because of past trauma. I would just take off that clause because of past trauma first of all. And stop you know like you had trauma yeah but the fact is you feel that way the fact is that May's heart would like to be communicated with during the day so she can have peace in her day knowing what time everybody's getting together that is just a totally okay personality trait there may be people who are looser about it but not you so just respect yourself respect yourself and be like yeah I need to know So when somebody says on Saturday, so tomorrow um, I'll give you a call, say, okay, what time did you want to, what time were you thinking of getting together? Um, Stand up for yourself in that way. Okay, you say, I feel terrified of checking in on them and asking for an update as I would with a friend, for example, because I don't want to come off as triggered and scared. Okay, yeah, I understand that. You don't want to show the triggered and scared card like early in a relationship, even though you are triggered and scared. You're triggered and scared about it that's how you really feel but yeah I get it to put on a kind of like you know to not put that on other people but how you avoid getting triggered and scared is just to just to ask just to say can you you know what time were you thinking Um, I can make plans for it if I know what time it is okay so you get afraid to check in and you don't ask them and you leave it open kind of giving them permission to not say but then you find that if you don't check in you get resentful when they finally do update you and there it is see there's the problem so for you may, I'm just going to suggest, you know, try this daily practice that I teach. See if you can get some of the feelings out on paper and just ask for them to be removed because what can happen when you do that and then rest in meditation is you just get a little clearer about what it really is. This dilemma of is it me or is it them it starts to come a little closer together and then you go, oh, it's them <laughs> or sometimes it's me, sometimes it's me. But that, that discernment of what it is is there. And as you begin to heal as a result of getting freer and freer of the fearful and resentful thoughts that are kind of driving you to not be yourself, to deny how you really feel, what you really need, when you're denying that, of course you're resentful, but you're kind of getting resentful at somebody else because you denied it from yourself. The part that's hard to face is that people who treat you like that, like it's, it's a little bit unlikely that they are secretly great people who are perfect for you. It's just that you haven't communicated your needs. It sounds more to me like you're letting people into your life who match your dad's neglect and you're trying to fix yourself to make it work. That's what it sounds like. So I think the hardest thing to face is that when somebody you like isn't going to work out and the right thing to do is to just end that relationship and make space so you can work on getting in touch with what's really important to you, what really makes you happy, what sort of a person you'd really like to find and fall in love with that there's a really good feeling ahead of that act of severing that relationship. But when you were neglected by a parent, that abandonment wound can be just, as you said, debilitating. It can be debilitating, very hard to make that decision, very tempting to keep thinking if I change, you know, maybe I can make them change, maybe I can change myself. And there's this huge attraction to try to blame ourselves for somebody else's bad behavior. Because if it's if it's me, you know, I can do something about that. If it's their bad behavior and it does in fact indicate that they're not very serious about me, that is so painful to face because you can't do anything about it. If there ever was a chance that such a person would turn around and start respecting you, uh, one thing that might bring it about is if you had boundaries around that and you just didn't, you know, follow through on plans. So one thing I did when I was dating and I did this when I was dating my husband is um, I just, I just set a quiet limit, I didn't tell him but if he called me at the last minute I wouldn't go out with him. <laughs> I just wouldn't go out with him, I'd want to go out with him but I knew that I needed to change my pattern of being you know the girl you call at the last minute and I wanted to save all my dating energy for somebody who was going to treat me better than that. So I picked a day Thursday, if he called me before Thursday to ask to get together on the weekend I'd be delighted to get together if I was free. But if he called me Saturday at five, I just had plans. So true story, <laughs> he called me at five on a Saturday once and I just, I was so lonely back then and I I was really into him and I was hoping he'd call and I wanted more than anything to hang out with him but Thursday had passed, Friday had passed, Saturday day and I was really disappointed and assumed he didn't like me but then he calls at five, my heart jumps. I'm like, oh, it's him. Oh, I wanted so bad to just Abandon my plan here to act like somebody who respects herself and um, I, 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 just, I just didn't want to do it I wanted to say yes but I just followed through I knew this was what I needed to do for me and I just said sorry I have plans now secretly my plan was to just sit there and um, not be that girl <laughs> that was the plan I just watched tv or something that night you know the kids were at their dad's I, I, I was free I was just sitting at home alone I was lonely and I said no and I remember he kind of went, oh, oh, okay. He goes, well, how about how about on uh, Tuesday then? And I said, yeah, sure, okay. <laughs> so then I had a date, I had a date on another day. But his attitude towards me flipped in that one phone call where I said no. I just said no to last-minute plans. So what you could do, May, if someone has really been disrespectful to you, is just say, oh, sorry, I didn't hear from you all day, I made other plans. And I know this will sound manipulative, but the other plan can be to just sit there in self-respect and take write your fears and resentments and start getting free of this idea that you should hold your whole day hostage for waiting for some guy to call, right? That's a plan. That's legit. And who knows? Maybe they'll come around or maybe they'll lose interest. If people are just kind of looking for a friends with benefits or a booty call type of thing, they they're not going to they're not going to pass that test. But I've noticed that sometimes to fall in love some of us have to have a boundary put before us that communicates that the person we're considering has this respect for themselves and requires that they be treated a certain way. And in my case uh, the person who mentored me kind of helped me to name what that would look like even before I had it and I agreed yeah that's what it would look like. And so I just decided to act as if that was who I was. And I'm telling you, from that day forward, I got asked out in advance and now we're married. It was a long road. It wasn't just like an instant thing. But the path to marriage started that day that I became self-respecting of my time and wouldn't just be the girl you call at the last minute when you don't have anything better to do. So I hope that helps you. Um, The waiting thing is still like, it's still a small trigger for me, but... It's a lot less now because there are so few people in my life who give me that pain of making me wonder what the heck's going on. Think about this for a minute. If nothing ever triggered your complex PTSD symptoms, they would be very unlikely to be activated. Now every time that you get triggered into some symptom, a panic attack, a migraine, feeling out of your body, feeling suddenly desperate or emotionally over the top, That is when CPTSD does its damage in your life. Now it's bad enough what happened to you in the past, but continuing to re-traumatize yourself with triggered behaviors only makes things worse. So for all the work you might have done in the past exploring what happened when you were little, who did it, how it affected your life, that's all good for the long term. But there's this immediate benefit if you can learn to notice what triggers you right now, and then to calm that triggered response. What happens when you have past trauma is, you know, it gets triggered, you go into a trauma response. It's physiological, it's neurological, and once it starts, it's very hard to turn back. But if you can calm the trigger before the symptoms really get going, aha, you just shut the door on your trauma-driven behaviors and they can't get in so easily. Or that's the goal. Now it takes practice, and by the way, if you think you have CPTSD, complex PTSD, the kind that comes from chronic ongoing stress, like for kids who are abused or neglected, you can learn about that. Check out the quizzes on my free tools page linked below down in the description section. For the next several weeks i'm going to be talking about some common triggers and you might want to be sure that you're subscribed so that you get a notification each time i publish a video about triggers you hit subscribe hit that little bell and i'll be talking about triggers that often show up in people who have grown up abandoned or ostracized i'll talk about triggers common in people who were raised in a controlling environment and today i'm going to talk about triggers that show up in people who grew up in an out-of-control environment where parents may have had alcoholism or addictions or were for some reason very neglectful of the needs and the sense of order in the household or disregarded your need for safety, for example. Now, how do I know all this? I grew up like that. That's the kind of household I come from. I come from a family where about half the members have a very active addiction if they're still alive and all the bad stuff that goes along with addiction and alcoholism. That's what my home was like when I was little. Now things were totally out of control. It was a mess. There wasn't always food. There was violence sometimes. Nothing was predictable. It was hard to plan things like birthday parties. There was a two year period where we had no hot water. So like most kids, you know, I just wanted to seem normal. I wanted to fit in, but I was ashamed of what was going on at home. So I worked overtime to try to fit in and, and it affected me deeply, of course. And I used to think, you know, that I, I was so good at sort of denying how bad it was. I just thought, I don't know, I'm just paranoid. I'm just too judgmental. These are the personality sides that were coming out from me early on, like in my teens you know, judgmental, paranoid, kind of a scold, and my mom used to laugh at how I would kind of stress out in the car or um, worrying about future plans and things, and she would call me a worry wart, but I now know I was triggered a lot of the time for good reason, and the stuff that triggered me might not bother most people, but they were super normal for a person who grew up in an out of control home. Now, let me know in the comments if you resonate with the symptoms that I go over or let me know if you have some of your own, All right. Number one, triggered by loud noises. In the home where I grew up there was a lot of breaking glass, shouting, banging, partying with loud music when I was little. Partying not by kids, by the adults. (laughs) And I lived part of my childhood in a commune and it was very, very out of control in adulthood um, especially in my 20s before i had begun healing my trauma i was really panicked by the feeling that you know everything's everything's getting crazy i don't know there's clothes coming off things are getting loud when i heard any noises like this well breaking glass used to make me practically fall down in a panic attack it was so triggering. Angry voices, certain um, like hard rock music from the early 70s, like I still don't want to hear it. It still just kind of brings back that yucky feeling like everything's just going to a very bad place. Second trigger getting your sleep disturbed when your kid in an out-of-control household you end up going to bed way past bedtime because no one's paying attention you could be on the sofa at a party or sleeping in a corner and someone trips on you or sits on you and that used to happen and this is also how so many kids end up getting inappropriately touched. And to this day, when I get abruptly awakened in the night that like, you know, I feel it's, it's not just a surprise. It's a feeling of being ready to fight. And luckily for my husband, this trigger has calmed a lot to the right size. You know, like triggers that come up in your sleep are pretty hard to change. It's not like you're conscious. And, um, I personally like it's when I wake up in the morning when I'm the most vulnerable to emotional flashbacks. But that thing where I get woken up in the middle of the night, I'm like, that that's really calmed down. You do need a little vigilance while you sleep, of course, but not like you did when you were a six-year-old in an out-of-control household. All right, the third trigger common for people from that kind of home follows the first two, and it's just being around people who are high or drunk. I'm totally fine up to a certain point. I can't even tell you where it is exactly when people are intoxicated. It's like up to a certain point, I'm like, that's fine. It's not like I'm a teetotaler, but there's a certain sound in the voice of someone who is losing their composure on substances. There's a smell they give off that I'm really tuned into. It comes off on their breath. It's a sick smell that lingers in the bathroom after they pee, which I think is associated with a strain from all the alcohol on the kidneys. My mom had that. And so at a very young age, I started, if the bathroom had that weird smell in it, I would immediately feel like really anxious. And that was astute. There really was, you know, things were getting very bad right there. My little child brain got tuned into clues like that, that things are getting crazy. And to this day, people partying can sort of cross a line where I feel really triggered and like, I need to get control over my environment. It's like a feeling that comes. Number four, I've got a similar trigger and this is um, with people doing sexual things in public. So our commune in Berkeley in 1971 had a lot of that, and it was really upsetting for me. I was, what, eight at the time, and that goes hand in hand with the drugs and the alcohol and the loudness and, you know, just feeling like nobody's paying attention to safety order or anything like that. So to this day, I'm just not that comfortable. Um, I did a very early blog post about, like, finally just deciding when everybody goes to some hot tub and gets naked i just don't want to i don't want to like i'm old enough i get to not do that so that's for me okay number five is speaking up do you get triggered when you speak up about something sharing an idea or even harder saying when something is bothering you because if you're if you grew up in an out of control household speaking up was very likely to get you well, not heard, right? You could get laughed at, you could get ignored, you could get yelled at, you'd be attracting attention that would, you know, whatever the bad thing that happens to kids in your house would start zooming in on you when you spoke up. So the price feels too high. It's triggering even to, you know, think I want to say something sometimes. Do you ever get that? Have you had to overcome that in adulthood? Um, number six is the opposite when you don't speak up holding in the thing that needed to be said can just totally poison your thinking too your emotions your body sharing your feelings and stating what you like or don't like or expressing your needs or you know setting a boundary or just normal parts it's that's just normal it's part of being in a family or a relationship so if it wasn't safe for you to do that you may have developed a habit of either hiding how you feel Or distorting how you feel so it would come out some way that you thought would be acceptable but of course even if they listened to you you wouldn't get what you needed because it wasn't what you needed or you try not to feel it like if I can just not need anything then everything will be okay so don't worry mom I'll be good I don't need anything a lot of us ended up with that then comes number seven and you know how intoxicated or out-of-control parents just love spontaneity (laughs) well planning is not their thing and maybe when you were little you got dragged along on some very spontaneous car trips or sleepovers or uh, homelessness episodes and if you complained people acted like you were this terrible demanding little kid i don't know maybe i'm projecting on you but that happened to me we'd be driving in the middle of nowhere we'd be in mexico or something in the night without enough food or water or gas and i'd be just freaking out in the back seat because We had this car that just like broke down all the time and they go, there she is again. She's a worry wart. But I was like, no, I was correctly anticipating there's going to be trouble. And um, a lot of scrapes that we got into that were terrifying for me because I just fundamentally didn't trust that my mom or whatever grownups were with us um, were really paying adequate attention. Like, is there enough water? Is there enough food? Did we tell people where we were? Things that it's just been such a pleasure to grow up and find out you can totally take care of these things. And um, and it's freed me up to travel again and to be a little more spontaneous. And I think there's probably still a trigger there for me. And the way you can tell is that when I take a trip, the amount of stuff that I pack on trips it's usually twice what I need, as, um, especially with food. I just end up with so much food. And that's something I've been working on. My fa- you know, I just got back from England. I did the London show there, which was great. We took the long plane flight back the next day. And my husband and my sons were like calling me out. And, like, You always have this like plastic shopping bag. I had this like Sainsbury's bag. I, it's always something. And it's with all these like random leftovers from our time and whatever last Airbnb we were in. And snacks like you can get snacks at the airport you know but i grew up really poor they're expensive you should bring everything you have in the fridge so i basically am toting like a fridge full of snacks and most of it isn't going to hold up you know the grapes just get all smushed and one by one i'm handing it to the flight attendant every time they come around for trash and they're like there you are with your bag of inedible food I'm laughing now and I was like is that weird and they were all three they were like yeah that's weird that's like your little OCD thing I don't have OCD but it's like a compulsion that I feel like oh you just never know you know we might get stuck in the air and we won't have snacks there is a practical element there you should just bring the carrots that you had in the fridge because you're not gonna be able to get carrots on the plane (laughs) but I take it way too far it's a trigger and a behavior that's come to light for me recently enough that I'm laughing at it and I'm working on it because it's also I think a little bit part of like food addiction of like oh there's not going to be enough there's not going to be enough which has been part of me overeating a bit all through my life and kind of you know struggling with that so we're going to talk more about food and weight and all that pretty soon in videos another reason to subscribe okay number eight out of control parenting styles can leave a big trigger on you around getting stood up you have a plan with someone and they didn't show up and uh, you know after school care memories anyone (laughs) when your mom or dad doesn't come or nobody picks you up and you're the last kid there, it feels terrible. Feels terrible. And I had a really debilitating trigger with this in my 20s and I remember when um, somebody I was dating didn't show up when they said they would and they actually were sort of being inconsiderate but the level that I was freaking out was way out of proportion with that. Um, You know they were like 40 minutes late where, and this was before we could text each other or anything, they were 40 minutes late. I could survive the experience but it would, I would just sort of psychologically flip over into this physiological state. And it was a rage feeling. And this is where I talk about sometimes the emotions just like traveling down my arms. That was an early cue before I had validations that yes, a trauma response is physiological. I could just feel it going to my body. And I think, oh no, I'm just kind of going into that state where I'm not going to be pleasant the rest of this day, no matter what, like no matter how much I tell myself, oh, it's a good explanation of why he was so late. Or, you know, I shouldn't get so upset about this. There was no turning back. There was no turning back. And I would just sort of be like this little, you know, hedgehog with, with rabies, you know, It's like waiting to bite. Couldn't get through it. So that is so much what my CPTSD was like for me. But now I know, yeah, it's a trigger. It's a normal, it's normal that I was triggered like that. It, it would bring up a feeling of just total, um, loss despair panic you know it went along with a pattern in my cptsd uh, behavior where i was choosing people who were going to stand me up too which is what a lot of my videos are about is how to choose better and then how to deal with the ups and downs of a relationship better too those two things together make a huge difference but it's clear to me now it's a normal trigger i'm not so weird you know that's just that's what happens when your parents didn't care for you or pick you up consistently all right number nine a trigger is that feeling that someone is lying or trying to manipulate you so come on you know get in the car it's fine it's a lie or eat the food that has mayonnaise on it that's been sitting out for 20 hours stop being so picky that's a lie (laughs) or you're upset my god everything with you has to be this big greek tragedy and yeah i got told that It's not a Greek tragedy, I was very upset about something that was happening but I was manipulated into believing that the problem wasn't what was upsetting me, it was that I was feeling upset. And boy does that carry on in your life and show up as what we call around here, crap fit, right? Where you fit yourself to crappy behavior and crappy people and always blame yourself and see if you can just like, you know, handle it better. Okay, trigger number 10, not doing anything. Just being idle. This is a big thing for grown-up children of alcoholics. It's pretty common. It's stressful not to be busy because, you know, the feelings are always lurking on the edges of the day. And if you give up control and all that suppressed, you know, anxiety, you just don't know what's going to come in and get you. And it's how a lot of us survived. Part of healing is making peace with both downtime and being able to take it easy and uptime where you need to step up and be productive. You got to do both. And this like swing between I can't do anything to I can't stop doing things could have a lot to do with vagus nerve activity, the sympathetic and parasympathetic systems. If one dominates or the other dominates, you can get very like overactive or, you know, sluggish. So healing your CPTSD helps bring you to the middle of that where you can be both calm, take it easy, step up, be active in a good, you know, good ratio. All right, number 11, the 11th trigger, arguing in public. Whether you're hearing it or doing it, it is absolutely horrible in my experience. Just so much shame. So much shame. Have you ever seen someone or been in the car with someone who demands that you stop the car so they can get out right now in the middle of nowhere? I've seen that but also I've been the person who wants to get out of the car. And it's a level of drama I hope to never go back to again in my life. But that's how intense the CPTSD symptom and the need to get away from the conflict can be or to get out of the, you know, public arguing. And I teach techniques that you can use whether you're in the, in the car about to get in the car or over on the side of the road when the car sped off because you insisted on getting out I have the techniques that can help bring you back to center so that you can figure out what to do in a better way and if you want to see that that is my free daily practice course it's down in the description section under this video and every video I make I hope you come take it if you take that free course you can learn and try it in less than an hour But the lovely thing is I'll invite you. I'll then send you emails and invite you to free Zoom calls with me. And um, we use the techniques together. A bunch of people come on the call each time, twice a month. And then you can ask me questions. You can actually talk to me directly about how it's going for you with the practice. So that's a good thing to try. All right, number 12, being in the car with somebody else driving yes just driving regular driving driving erratically is definitely a trigger but just being there where you can't control the brake pedal if you grew up with out-of-control parents that can be a huge trigger so have you ever had this where you're like one of your legs is really tired from being a passenger in the front seat and stamping on a phantom brake pedal this is a classic metaphor for trying to gain control over an out-of-control situation And of course, you know, you have no control at all over a car that somebody else is driving unless you get out of the car, out of that relationship, or out of that phase in your life where CPTSD has you attached to people who scare you in the car at all. So number 13, big trigger, birthdays and holidays, um, special occasions. Talk about a Greek tragedy. That's where my emotions come up. You're all grown up but will the people in your life remember? Will they care? Will it be enough? <laughs> I'm laughing at myself because I've just been through this so much. And um, finally, I have healing to the point that I can enjoy special occasions and extra enjoy it if people remember and do something nice for me, but I can just enjoy it because it's, it's a special day to me. And um, this is kind of connected to the 14th trigger, which is times when you're supposed to get accolades, right? Congratulations, compliments, um take a bow it's so triggering for some of us because again it attracts attention and so many times have you been let down when um you know you were in a school play and all the other kids got you know their parents brought bouquets or something and your parents forgot to come or they came but they didn't bring the thing or they just weren't in touch and um it's these can be small things or they can be big things but that's definitely been a trigger in the past for me. And it's this weird kind of tension between fearing that you're a victim who isn't going to get enough and then that you're getting too much attention and you're getting too much, you know, it's just like it can't really hit the right spot. You're sort of not having the experience authentically. It's just tripping about like, how's everybody handling this? It's okay. That's a really normal way to be wounded after people did that. They, their level of attention on you wasn't consistent. So, so far, my healing has allowed me to get a round of applause or somebody, you know, gets a profuse thank you from somebody and I can just be glad and smile. Or I can not get applause and not really trip about it. It's so freeing to be just neutral and along for the ride of my life. And finally, one of the strongest triggers for people who grew up in out-of-control households where they got so little help is in adulthood when you have to ask for help it feels so shaky and risky and shameful and hard to define. Like how do, what do I even say? What do I even need? Like we have so little practice like putting that thought together. And I just often feel like a wobbly little lamp, you know, that's about to come unscrewed from the base and you have to keep propping it up. So can you actually ask? Is it too much to ask? Should you be able to handle this yourself? Could you, if you pushed yourself, handle it yourself? The cure for this trigger is sometimes to have something so bad happen that there, you have no choice. You have to be helped. And I had a breakthrough around needing help when I had a major surgery that involved you know, removing muscles from one of my legs to repair these other parts of my body. I had surgery everywhere. I couldn't walk. It was painful. And it was like two months where I couldn't totally take care of myself. And so a family member came and helped me and it was horrible for me to have to keep asking for every single thing I ate and every time I needed the phone, but it was good for me and it was good for my relationship with my relative. So the solution for having these triggers isn't to try to control the world, but maybe to get some boundaries around your world. Who you hang out with, who you don't, and to learn to calm your triggers so that all these decisions are no longer an involuntary reaction. But a choice and if you haven't learned to calm those triggers definitely come check out my free course thousands of people are taking it it's something that i really love doing is being on the calls with everyone and helping them refine their technique and you know we have all these paid courses and programs and coaching things you can join but you don't even have to have a penny you just have to have an internet connection maybe a phone to come join our zoom calls so i'd love to have you there i've just had a very dysregulated week And I wanted to tell you about it because I got hit with some of my very worst CPTSD triggers all at once. And I was able to pull it together and get my work done and basically take care of myself. But I got really thrown off last Sunday when I was riding in the car with my husband and son on the way home from Los Angeles. And we'd been down there to do a live show. And I had a really happy time there. It was this last minute thing to do the live show there and all these great people showed up and i felt such love in the room um, from them and for them and my heart was just wide open and then on the way home there's this six hour drive on the this long straight highway between la and where i live and a really bad car crash happened just six or eight cars ahead of us And I don't want to get into too much detail, it's triggering even for me to talk about it, but basically a car that had been coming down the other side of the highway, like way across a wide median, came flying and flipping over and landed on our side of the highway. There were two lanes and between the car and all the stuff that had been in the car, it just blocked the whole highway. Everything came to a stop. And it was nighttime, 6.30 at night. And after a minute, I couldn't really see what was going on. And after a minute I got out of the car, I decided, okay, I'm gonna go see what's going on. Some other people got out and we went up there and I ended up helping to move stuff off the highway. And then I had to make a decision because I knew that on the side of the car that I couldn't see from the highway, which was you know thoroughly shut down, we could stand there. But I knew that on the other side of the car, there was gonna be some bad stuff. And um, so I went over there And there were two people and one was a woman who they were pulling out of the car and one was um, a man who was on the ground. There were no paramedics yet. It takes, you know, we were in the middle of nowhere. It took like 15 minutes for them to come. It was, it felt like 45 minutes. It felt like so long. So I sat with this man who was conscious, you know, um, he didn't seem to be uh, critically injured. He could move his toes and everything. And I talked to him and just was like talking calmly to him and helping him. To cope with what's happening we had a blanket on him and I'm not really sure what happened to his wife it seemed kind of bad it was a very serious situation and um, I don't know if she made it but I stayed until the ambulance came first for her and then they took him and I promised him I'd stay and I did and I'm glad I did I think I was able to comfort him and bring calm right in this terrible worst moment of his life and when i got back to my car uh, i was basically in shock and i got a chance to notice what that kind of trauma feels like in my body at this stage of my recovery like i've had some bad stuff happen in my life but thankfully not in a while i have so much more healing you know just kind of as a baseline right now so i got to see what that's like and i still get dysregulated but I'm able to both experience dysregulation and kind of observe what's happening and why, why it's happening and what to do. So I thought I'd share with you 22 triggers that I still have that I'm aware of. And four of them were activated last Sunday when I was helping with that accident. So, all right number one (laughs) trigger still still for me is any kind of real life violence and I I think I'm not the only one who has that but I I saw that I witnessed that in the accident and it immediately kind of like threw me into a shocked state um I don't really have much of a problem like seeing it on television if it's fictional i go out of my way not to watch real life videos where bad things happen i don't want to see that it's very upsetting to me violence is a trigger so that that one kind of goes without saying Number two is talking about my trauma. So when I got back to the car, I uh, explained, you know, with the car was still back behind the accident, so they couldn't see what was going on, and I came back and explained to them what was happening, and I could hear my voice. I had this very weird, detached voice, very calm, that I'd sort of gotten stuck in from talking to this man for 10 or 15 minutes and using my voice to reassure and calm him. You know, everybody's working on this. We've got this. This is really good. They're helping her. The ambulance is coming. I see them now. And and, uh, I couldn't stop talking like that. I was kind of stuck in this mode. Maybe I was doing it for myself. But talking about my trauma in any context is always risky for me and can get me very dysregulated. And I'll immediately start noticing symptoms of being kind of like out of my body. I was way out of my body for this thing. But in a weird way, because it was a crisis, I was like deeply in my body. I was dealing with stuff. There was a part of me that was just like not there for this. So at first I was just like really checked out and kind of talking in this way. But what happened was for my husband and son, I don't think they really understood the gravity of the situation that I think I just saw somebody die or come very close to death and it was super traumatic I mean it was right there and we were waiting and waiting for the ambulance and that is such a prime condition for PTSD to kick in you know a life-and-death situation and I have like old stuff that's happened so that got triggered and I ended up like mad that they weren't more comforting and hugging me and going are you okay but they didn't recognize it because I was acting so calm so that's a, that's a form of dysregulation. So third thing, when I'm not allowed to speak or I'm silenced or ignored or not called on, that is a huge trigger for me. So in this one, because they didn't ask me, how was that? Are you okay? Um, at first I, at first I didn't, I didn't consciously get triggered by it, but I just got really checked out I, and I got very agitated and they were like, well, as we continued driving afterwards they're like well should we keep listening to the podcast and at first i was like yeah sure and then i was like no i can't deal with all this talking and then i was angry that they weren't like talking to me more about it and a friend was texting me and said hey how's it going when are you getting home and i mentioned what was happening and they offered they're like do you want me to get out to the highway and meet you and help you deal with this like they were so kind that it occurred to me like people could respond that way (laughs) and then i got really messed up And that's the weird thing about me. Like I can get very, very triggered by talking um, about what traumatized me. And then when I get validated, when I talk about negative emotions later in the week, another friend I had, um, I left a recording, you know, we talk on Marco Polo and I left this recording about what happened. And I think it was a very kind of heavy, thoughtful, honest, you know, this is what happened. And then she left me back a recording and it was this really like, you know, lengthy considerate recounting of what i had told her with these validations kind of added in and it really i got really dysregulated and at first i was like why is she doing that and i was using my tools my daily practice to start going you know this i don't people know like you shouldn't validate me when when i'm feeling bad but of course that's that's what loving people do (laughs) that's what loving people do and it's really hard for me to receive that for whatever reason because of the way i'm wired or the way i was brought up but when people validate like sometimes i want to say what's bothering me and then i just want to like put it in a box And if people start commenting on it, you know, it just like really triggers me. One thing that always really worked for me is being in 12-step meetings where people don't comment on what you said. And I, you know, did a lot of my growth in that environment where I could say honestly what was going on and nobody would comment. And that felt really safe to me. So, you know, something to consider. Maybe you're like me. I'm not saying it's the only way to be or the right way to be, but it's definitely how I am. That I sometimes need space from people commenting on what I said, and then I'll get mad if it wasn't what I wanted. You know, go figure. But it was it was a it was a bad situation. It was very traumatic, so I forgive myself. All right. So I told you that the the big four were ha- happened for me in that accident. But I got to thinking, like, what are the other ones that are still really hard for me just to share with you about it? Okay. One of my big triggers is. Um, and when I say trigger, I mean it triggers dysregulation. Like people use trigger to just mean it makes me angry or, you know, it makes me wanna fight with you. But I'm talking about like, it triggers neurological dysregulation to the point that, that um, I sometimes can't feel my hands or I can't really like process information very well or uh, it's very hard for me to focus afterwards. Like I still struggle with neurological dysregulation. Uh, when certain triggers happen. And so I'm, I'm no longer like trying to control the world on my triggers. I'm learning to calm my triggers so that the world can just be the world and I can move freely and people don't have to worry too much about me. Okay. But that said, a trigger for me is getting interrupted. I can get interrupted once or twice or three times, but if I'm getting interrupted a lot, it's weird. This like switch will flip and I go into dysregulation and then I can't think and... If i get dysregulated it is so disruptive to my ability to work and you know i love my job my job is hard my job takes a lot of focus there's a lot going on we have a lot of people working at crappy childhood fairy i'm in charge i'm creating all the content i'm talking to people i'm providing coaching you know there's just like stuff going on all day like if i kind of check out for an hour it costs all of us that hour and so it's really important to me to kind of stay checked in and to stay regulated so it's i'm glad i'm aware of this so the interruptions can get to me and if i notice it's happening if i start to feel the frustration that i'm getting i don't think anybody likes to get interrupted certainly not a lot but this thing where i start to lose my ability to like cognitively put things together if that happens it's just like such a pain to have so when i notice it happening i come back and use my tools For this, I use writing. And sometimes, you know, I write my fears and resentments. That's a big part of what I do twice a day. But this other thing is when I'm trying to express myself and I'm not being heard or I'm getting interrupted, that's like this big theme. And I can see how it came from my childhood. But whatever, you know, it doesn't matter where it came from. It's happening now. Um, That sometimes I can just make a note to myself about the thing I wanted to say. Because that's part of the frustration is you know, I kind of walk around with anxiety. I'll forget what it is. Like, oh, I thought of something. I want to say it. I really want to express this. So I write it down and I can say it later or remember to follow up on it later. And that's like really calming to me. I also keep paper by the bed. So if I wake up in the middle of the night, this is not really a trigger thing, but I I guess in a sense it is. I wake up and I'm like, oh, I've got to send that check to so-and-so or whatever. Contact the accountant or... I think of these things and i have paper so i can scribble it over there in the middle of the night because otherwise it'll keep me up just like oh no i'll forget i'll forget tomorrow it's just kind of free-floating anxiety but that's what the writing is for it's like out of my head onto the paper back to sleep all right another here's another big trigger buying things i really don't do well in department stores especially chaotic noisy ones or farmers markets or that kind of environment or buying large purchases like buying it like the internet is like such a gift to somebody like me and my car there's this service where i live and you can shop for the car online and then they'll bring it to you to test drive (laughs) and i did that i did a lot of research online and um, i had them bring me a car and i bought it and i love my car it worked out really well and i never had to like go to a car lot or deal with the salesman That works so well for me. I I mean, I'm not against salesmen. It's just that when I'm under pressure that I have to spend money. And I think this has to do with growing up poor. I used to, like if I had to buy a pair of shoes, it would have to be the shoes that would fit every need that I had for the next two years. And the pressure was huge. (laughs) And so this weird pressure comes up. And in department stores, I can last for about an hour or malls malls i'll last for about an hour there's something about i don't know the smells the fibers the lights and the noise chaos i just start i just start getting like woozy i can't handle it i get dehydrated and i want to go and i go with and because i don't want to leave empty-handed because i need something (laughs) i end up just impulse buying something and i don't like what i got So I tend to go shopping by myself when I need clothes and I'll get a whole bunch of things at once and try not to go very often. That's my style. (laughs) All right. Number eight is um, feeling left out. I think that that's hard for everybody, but I don't like feeling left out. When I feel not invited, not included, I'm not in on the secret or something, that one still gets to me every now and then it happens. Number nine is feeling unprepared or sloppy in a professional environment. Like when I did my first webinar last month, I did a webinar on work and CPTSD where all of a sudden Zoom crapped out and I just got cut off from the whole thing and I had to call back in. And luckily my team was like, Anna will be back. And I came back, but ooh, it dysregulated me. And it's funny because I lead large Zoom meetings with a couple hundred people quite often. But in this case i knew that some of the people had paid for it and i felt really responsible for it being a great experience and for feeling like value for money and part of that is you know this will be quality i i will know what i'm talking about you can just sit back and learn and then i just like got cut off the phone call and had to dial back into my own call Uh, i i don't know probably you can relate to that all right so number 11 is getting ridiculed or put down in front of a group getting ridiculed or put down or having those things double bad is doing it in front of other people and I am a total goofus I love making jokes I love making fun of myself but I I just I when the way that I grew up sometimes I was made fun of in a way that really hurt um they thought that I was too Um, rigid or serious. And honestly, I was, you know, when I was a little kid, I was living in an extremely chaotic environment where people were on drugs and it was, people were coming and going and different men and just all over the place. If I was rigid and kind of like a worry wart, that is correct. But I was made fun of for that. And so that's kind of the theme when people are like, oh God, you're being so controlling. I, uh, uh, it'll sort of trigger this old thing. And Honestly, that's just one of the things that I just go, oh, there it is. It's a trigger. I don't feel like I get more than my share of that. Well, a little bit, you know, if you go on YouTube and just start telling your true stories on YouTube, like I'm doing right now, you're going to get these comments that are, you know, shaming or making fun of you or something, but it's strangers on YouTube. And like, what does it say about somebody that they just like attack people online? It's just so, so lame, but it, it can hurt sometimes. It can hurt. Here's another one opinion bullies. I just did a video about this. Opinion bullies are people who really believe they're right and they get in your face and they tell you what you have to believe and they fight with you about it. And I think that I'm just like everybody else from this last decade where it's really gotten out of hand and people can be quite cruel about it. But the part that's hard for me is I actually, I'm pretty... Um, thoughtful and discreet where I have opinions where I think it might be divisive or uncomfortable for people. I don't bring them up in groups. In our membership program, we're like, we have a few cardinal rules. It's like, you don't get to discuss politics here. You can do that everywhere else on the internet, but politics is not relevant for what we're doing here. And then we have a no giving direct advice. And so I'm going to throw that in getting di- people when people give me direct advice. It is a trigger for me. I don't like it. It kind of interferes with my brain waves, especially when it's about my health. When I had some serious um, medical stuff going on and everybody got in there and was giving me all their conflicting personal idea of what I had to do. I hated it. And when you're trying to heal a serious health thing, talk about like you're, you're, you're actually like communing with your nervous system and you're bringing it forward into being able to function again. Like that's really what's going on when you're healing. So I really don't like people getting involved in that. And I can get very irri- irritated and start withdrawing from people quite badly. That's a trigger. I don't want to be sensitive like that. And hopefully, well, I haven't been sick in a long time to, to test it. So... So that one, but opinion bullies where people are like, they hate you, or they, um, they say hateful things about people where I'm like, ah, they're talking about me, but they just don't know that I'm one of those people. That is very triggering for me. And it's funny because like my husband is completely fine with that. He just doesn't take it personally at all. He doesn't even care if people think that. He doesn't even judge them if they feel that way about other people. But I, he thinks it's just because I'm female. I don't know. But I'm just like, they don't like me. If they really knew me, they wouldn't like me. They don't know what I really think. I just want to be over that. I, I, I have a fantasy that as of when I'm 90 years old... <laughs> I'm gonna be so fine with how everybody has opinions and I'll just be like, I just love everybody. I just love everybody. That's where I'm trying to head with that. You know, you've heard that saying, opinions are like, you know what, (laughs) holes. (laughs) Everybody has one, right? All right, here's another one. This is a trigger for me. And this is street fairs. I hate street fairs. I hate the food. I hate the music. I hate the crowds. I hate the prospect of trying to look at something you might want to buy. Cause I don't like buying things. Cause it's really stressful for me. Like the whole setup of a street fair is just like totally sensory overload for me. And, um, and I don't like them. And I would just like to ask, how come street fairs don't have very good music ever? And who picks that music anyway? And why, And how you can hear two bands at the same time and it's terrible sound, like all that stuff. I'm very sensitive to like bad sound. And <laughs> so street fairs, one of the biggest street fairs in the world is near my house, like five blocks away every year. And I haven't been in like a decade, like, ugh. <laughs> very yucky for me. Okay, here's here's one. And this is kind of related to street fair, but it's like, um, loud music that reminds me of the 70s drug scene because in the early 70s, I was living in a commune as a little kid and that music and the the sort of aesthetic of the whole thing, but that like, I don't know, that negative nihilistic music really bums me out. Um, it feels evil to me. And I know it's not inherently evil, but it's associated with stuff that was evil that was going on in my home at the time. So that could be part of the, street fair thing and also why i'm like when oh when are they going to update their choice of bands so it's not like 70s drug scene music you know apologies to those of you who are who play that kind of music or love it like i get it i like i like i like what i like all right here's another trigger this one is also related to the commune thing the smell of health food stores and i mean the co-op kind that smells like a mix of curry henna and something sour and also fermented vegetables or something that smell of health food stores like immediately makes me feel depressed. I know where it comes from. Here's one. Public nudity. Um, I did a post like very early in Crappy Childhood Fairy. It's not even a video. And um, it's called Feeling Naked. It was a blog post and maybe I'll bring it out sometime. But growing up in a commune, I was pressured all the time to run around naked with the other kids. And I never felt safe and I never felt okay. And then as a young adult, you were supposed to be really cool at hot tubs and rivers and stuff. And then I, when I um, actually got into 12-step recovery, one of the first things that happened when I was encouraged and supported and using my daily practice to start just getting completely honest with myself, I'm like, I hate that. And now I don't do it anymore. I do whatever I want. So I don't have to do it. And honestly, I'm not that comfortable when other people are doing it. No judgment. I'm just not comfortable. And yeah, you can see where that came from too. All right, here's one. I think everybody has this people yelling at me. Boy, do I not like that. Boy, does that upset me. We had this thing happen. Um, Kara, who is the community manager of our members, we, um, we were taking a day trip together with our husbands. We went, <laughs> we went up to Napa and we went to this food court place to get lunch and we were pulling into a parking space and some lady in an SUV starts honking and like screaming at us. And I guess she thought it was her parking place and You know i'm i'm quite sure we were there for a very long time waiting for that space and she had just pulled in but whatever you know the screaming cursing and then we went in and of course i was having a meltdown of paranoia and fear because of the way it's just like again this is the most you're going to hear me talk about how i grew up but people screaming and yelling often went to violence and so i sort of go into this place where i'm like expecting violence any minute well guess what the lady comes up behind my husband and starts bashing him with a baby stroller yeah okay i'm judging that i am judging that i mean bashing a man with your baby is just insane and then she went in she jostled him on purpose and slammed into him and he ended up talking to her with his kind gentle voice like why are you doing that well we were actually waiting and he was <laughs> And I think she ended up sort of melting and going, oh, I'm sorry. And she walked away and that worked out, but I was there. I couldn't eat. I couldn't think. I was just like, I was on high vigilance about this, but it turns out that wasn't totally, totally crazy. All right. I'm getting towards the later parts of the triggers that I'm aware of. One is, and this is just like a physical trigger, and I've talked about this before, but if I eat sugary, floury food, especially in the morning, I'm going to have trouble staying regulated through the day. Like part of staying neurologically regulated, it's just a total physical thing. It's not just emotional. It's not just experiential. It's what I put in my mouth. And eating protein and keeping keeping the sugary flour stuff kind of away really helps me kind of stay regulated it's just you know i can pay attention i'm focused my emotions are just kind of humming along and you know responsive to what's going on around me and not just kind of you know i don't know get feeling too much thinking too just thinking about stuff that's off topic all the time who needs it all right here's one being woken up too many times i can take it once or twice but you know when it happens like 15 times not so good And I, I, it'll make me really angry and kind of bring on a emotional flashback. I was very lucky. My two kids were very, I I co-slept with them and they were just calm. And, you know, I really got to sleep pretty well with that. But there's other circumstances, noisy neighbors, people who snore, that kind of thing that can really, really make it hard for me to sleep. (laughs) All right. Another one. Fearing someone is mad at me or talking behind my back. Eh, you know, I'm getting over that. Or... And this one gets me in the morning. I'm, I'm vulnerable in the morning, but I wake up in the morning often and just see what have people been writing on the YouTube channel. Sometimes there's just a comment sitting there like a turd <laughs> waiting for me. And I see it and I'm like, oh, there it is. Don't get dysregulated. Don't get dysregulated. Don't get dist- dysregulated. But it like makes me mad. And sometimes I'd really like to just like come back hard at those people, but there's never a point. I'll just give you a heads up right now. There's just very little point in ever responding to people who are bullies and jerks and who put you down online and luckily if it's your channel you can just uh, remove their comments or hide them from the channel so if people are really abusive to me or anybody else that's what i do and uh, but it doesn't quite have the satisfaction of really telling them a piece of your mind so um, but if i were to do that that would even be more dysregulating so it's for my sake as well as theirs as well as the community that i just don't do that so finally, the last one is um, having conversations about complex issues like the news or personal finance, or what do we have to do at work today? Cause you know, my husband runs the operations now of the business. And so in the morning, first thing in the morning, sometimes he'll be like, oh, I've got a lot on my mind. Let's talk about it. And I'll go, wait, wait, I have to do my daily practice first. And I'm not just being picky. If I try to take on something that involves a deep thinking and stress, before I've written my fears and resentments and meditated, I can almost never get back to my ideal, you know, my ideal focus. So that's kind of the cardinal rule. And I go to my little space and I go do my, my daily practice. If, you know, I'm always talking about this, but if you have any of these triggers I have, if you want to learn how to calm them, this is what I did. I learned a specific writing technique and a simple meditation. They go together. I teach them in a free course. They're always down in the description section. It's their freestanding called the daily practice. It's also on the free tools page of my website. The free tools page is linked in the description section as well. I'm just sort of throwing it in your face all the time, but it, it can really be helpful. So I go do that in the morning all by myself and then I come out and then I can talk. And so those are the 22 triggers that are still active in me. And one day I hope to tell you I have a few less (laughs) and hopefully no new ones. Thank you so much for listening. If you love my content, think about joining my membership program. You can find out more information about that and all my courses and coaching programs in the episode description below or on my website, crappychildhoodfairy.com If you're going through a hard time and you need online therapy, I encourage you to check out BetterHelp. They're easy and affordable and they can connect you with someone you choose within a few days. And if you use this special URL, you not only help this channel, but you get 10% off your first month of therapy. So go to betterhelp.com slash ccf, as in crappy childhood fairy. That's betterhelp.com slash ccf. And remember, healing is possible. People with childhood PTSD can have a wonderful life. Sometimes we just need a few workarounds. I'll see you next time.